All right, everybody, welcome to the podcast. Glad you're here. And uh, Eric, back with me. Uh, Eric, we're both coming off of Thanksgiving, and so I hope it was an awesome experience for you, as good as possible. Sometimes family stuff can be stressful. Um, I feel a little bit of a shell shock, I think, jumping back into uh, just the rhythm of work. I hadn't taken time off in a while, so that felt pretty good. So how about you, man? What was uh, Thanksgiving like for you? Yeah, I totally had the similar thing. I hadn't taken off work for multiple days in a row or just not try to not think about it for multiple days in a row in quite a while, but had a really good week and uh, spent some time with my family and really enjoyed that. Did you eat a lot of food? I ate so much food. Hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. You know how they say like you have to wait 20 minutes for your stomach to catch mm-hmm. up to your brain or vice versa? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't have that time. I just <laughs> keep eating. <laughs> Nice. Now, did your like mom fix a bunch of your favorite stuff? Yeah, we went to my aunt and uncle's house for Thanksgiving, and we all brought food, and it's always similar kinds of stuff, so very comforting. Yeah. We kind of build, you know, my wife and I have been married 15 years, so we're doing our own traditions at this point, uh, things the kids like, and then we have people come over. So it was a full day, but, yeah, just having time to just decompress, trail run, um, super awesome. Well, man, you know, I always like to jump in and just say, as we look back at the last week, we're building on these previous eight weeks, but keep on looking for moments where we become aware of fear or proving or hiding. And then what'd you do about it? Sure. So like you said, it's not always the easiest conversations that happen at that Thanksgiving table. Uh, so of course, with my big transition coming up, leaving the job, going on a big trip, which I'm not sure if I've told you too much about. Um, uh, you know, a lot of my family is having doubts about it. They're trying to give me their two cents and I don't really feel like listening to them because I'm taking charge right now. I'm like blazing, I'm blazing a trail Yeah. and I don't really, I'm not going to let anyone stop me, but of course they want to give their opinions and it's hard for me to not get defensive about it or, um, just ignore or try to take something from what they're saying. So that would be the times this week mostly where I felt a little bit uh, insecure because I think I know what I'm doing. I mean, I don't really know what I'm doing, but I'm doing it anyway. And, um, you know, people trying to talk me out of it or tell me what, what I should do. I don't, I don't like that. So I would notice myself getting a little bit defensive and then I'd sort of just like <laughs> take, a, take a deep breath. Hey, well, that's awesome yeah. noticing that. There was a guy, I think his name was Ram Das. He says, if you think you're enlightened, spend a week with your family. Um, and it's so hard. <laughs> this is, you know, we talk about those pressures earlier on, the strong voice of tradition, the strong voice of the other. And those two strong voices get wrapped up in our family for sure. And it's like they don't even know they're doing it. Uh, it's not necessarily malicious, but it's no. like, no, we need you to be this way so we can feel relaxed, secure, chill about who we are and who you are. And we don't want you to create anxiety for us. So take this path. And it's very confusing for a lot of people. And they they never break free from that. Um, and so, you know, 
this is a massive decision to make to step in a different direction. This is why I know we talked about this, uh, that top regret of the dying with the hospice patients. I wish I would have lived my life, not the one someone else wanted me to live. And, uh, yeah, we don't have to know what we're doing perfectly, but we know we got to take this step. And so, yeah, yeah, right on. Do you feel like you kind of communicated yourself and then after that you were able to, or you calm yourself and then you're able to communicate yourself and everybody kind of gave you space and respected that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, just try to change the subject mostly, but internally I was fine. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to try to make them understand what I'm doing because it might not ever happen. Yeah. Um, and it's really not that bad. I make it sound like it's bad. No, I get it. I get a lot of support from my family, but sometimes they don't really like what I'm doing or they have, they want to tell me what to do. And of course I don't like that. You know, when you're younger, when you're really young, you want to do the opposite of that. (laughs) Um, or well, when you're really young, you you want to be like your parents. And then at a certain age, you want to be like nothing like your parents. (laughs) And then you, you sort of figure out how to be yourself along the way. Yeah. <laughs> and and you get into these spaces and you're like, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm doing this. That's just like my dad or that's just like my mom." <laughs> um, yep. And it, the best you can hope for is you're not overreacting or repeating. Like you just said, you're being yourself, you're being who you are. Um, but I know just from a number of people uh that I've talked to just the Thanksgiving holidays, yeah, the pressure uh, newly married couples. So when are you having kids? Unmarried. So when are you getting married? Um, it's yeah. always this pressure for this next step rather than who are you, where are you right now, and what can I do to support you? So that's a good reminder for us all to aspire to a more secure relationship <laughs> when we're in those places, which I kind of am. I, you know, I'm watching my kids get older, 13, 11, and now 10 and it's really easy to just get in that space where you don't want to invest the energy to just be with them. And the more that I do that with myself, I'm able to do that for others. And, uh, yeah, man, awesome. Well, any other moments you look back at, dots connected, became aware, not that there has to be, just wanted to check in. Yeah, well, taking those days off was really nice, but there were certain points where I felt like I was wasting time. You know, I wanted to be working. I wanted to be making progress because while the rest of the world is relaxing, I could be getting ahead <laughs> at my thing. But of course, it's better. To, that time is best spent with family or just taking a break. And that's what I told myself I would do. So when I would feel the temptation to break out my computer or work on something else, uh, that I, I would just try to remind myself why I came home, why I was taking these days off and yeah, a lot, a lot riding on this, these next few weeks for sure. Um, I have one week at this job. So a lot of energy thinking about that, just waiting, waiting. Mm -hmm. And that's Um, so anxious ridden can be. (laughs) Yeah. For some reason I decided to give two months notice. I guess I was being really nice instead of two weeks notice. Uh, and it's definitely coming back to bite me. I wish I kind of just ripped the bandaid off a little faster. But what, what about you? Were there any moments that you became aware of this week? I feel like I haven't flipped it on you ever. <laughs> oh, man. Thanks. That's awesome. Um, wow. That's super cool. Yeah. Um, 
I think for me, two, one mission, one community. A uh, mission one was Saturday. I got to trail run, which I love. Came back, did nutrition. It's kind of like the week seven thing. Stack the experience, music, nutrition. And um, really, my brain was like primed and ready to roll. Uh, super energetic. I had had a couple days of rest. And we're doing this thing as a family. I was hoping that when I got done with the books, because it's such an intense push uh, the last you know six, seven weeks, and then even the last year. Um, that I, I got w- my copies, by the way. Sweet. They're in the wild. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> um, but I was hoping to have something we could do as a family to kind of like bond, you know, just stoke up the culture, inside jokes. And so they wanted to watch this show once upon a time. And at first I wanted to protest it. I'm like, I don't want to watch the show. But I uh, gave myself to the first couple episodes. And, dude, I'm telling you, of course, I have three daughters, so four ladies, I'm outnumbered. But I have gotten into that show. It's got, like, backstory on, um, you know, every fantasy or fairy tale story you grew up with. So Saturday, we never do this. It's Saturday morning, it's like, let's watch a few shows of that, a few episodes and I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. But I also had so much energy, I wanted to go work. And it was, just, I'm sitting in the chair, we're watching this show, and I'm seeing it on like 10 different layers because my brain is so activated. Um, and I'm like, ah, I should be using this extra power of creativity and energy to work. I was like, no, I'm just going to be here. And um, that was really cool. And then I think, you know, from a community standpoint, realizing that right now as they've gotten older um i'm still not to the point that i think i've reached a real groove of relating to them and giving them a safe place to fall apart with me so that they don't feel like they always have to have their stuff together you know um they need that, and I want to be that for them so they don't always have to make the best choices or whatever. It's it's just a place they can just be. I need to be that for myself. I want to be that for them. So those two moments over the four days were really powerful for me and insightful and going, okay, this is what it means to downshift, relax, and watch this show, and this is what it means to be a safe place for them that they can be goofy with me and I'm not getting irritated when they get real silly and uh, whatever the different moods they're in. Um, so, yeah, good. Man, thanks for asking back. That was cool. Cool to think about that. Um, That's great, man. Yeah, good to hear. So week nine, decision-making. This specific week, there's so much I can cover. And are you reading the emails or did you read chapter nine out of the book for this one? I just got the book yesterday, okay. so I haven't even opened it yet. I just read the back. Yeah, no worries, and saw my mistake. I bet on the back. Um, the, those are I say, I'm saying they're collector's editions till we upload the fixed versions. Um, but so yeah, if you get a chance later on, I'll go as far as we can tonight. There's there's just a lot there to making decisions. Um, were you able to take a decision and deconstruct it through that, those four questions? 
Yeah, I was. Um, just a question, though, about the book and stuff. Yeah. Would you recommend that I go through it from chapter one, or should I just start where I'm at right now in the program? Yeah, I would start where you're at now, and then you can just go back okay. later. Uh, there's more there. It's the most robust version. Uh, it seems like, and and it's no specific person, but it seems like every week I'm kind of like, how far can we go? And um, I never can get everything in. So the book was an attempt to say, let me get a lot more than the podcast has. Of course, way more than the email. And I just don't want people interacting with it through email eventually. You know, it's uh, email can be such an anxiety ridden exercise. But yeah, going forward, chapters are good. Um, great question. So yeah, tell me about the decision, what it was like to deconstruct that and what you what you saw when you walked through those things. So the, the decision that I was thinking about this past week was to work with a specific client that I worked with uh, last year. And it was a poor decision because I should have well, I'll get into that. I, I, I look back on it, and that's like one of the worst decisions I've made uh, in the last couple years. Um, so I was a little confused about the exercise, but I'll, I'll do my best here. So the first question, just walking through them, is am I distorting reality to force the story that I want to be true? And, yeah, I definitely was distorting reality. Uh, I wanted to work with this person because I wanted – uh, I wanted to make I wanted to make the money from the job. I wanted to have a portfolio piece. Uh, I wanted to enjoy the project, but in reality, the project wasn't really that enjoyable. I hadn't thought out all of the steps. I was distorting the project to make it better, and the client themselves was definitely not a good fit for me. So I was distorting it to make it seem like it was a good fit. And my second one: Am I looking for one fact to justify? what I feel covering up the concerns. So I was looking for, you know, how much money can this person pay me so that I can deal with all these other things or, um, and, and this is me sort of stretching to try to answer these questions here. Mm-hmm. Uh, am I counting on external factors that I can't control and chasing a, fan- a fantasy? Um, this one is tough because when you work, with somebody that you can't control them and up front they might seem okay uh, or they might not seem okay but you really can't control how they're going to react to especially when you show them like what I, what I do like I show them a design I have no idea how they're, they're going to react sure maybe I want them to react positively but I, am I counting on them to react positively uh, so that I can get paid or whatever that's that's how I look at that question I'm not sure if I misunderstood that one either. No, that's great. And stop me if you want to break, break, if you want to break any of these down. Uh, um, and the primary reason, am I aware of the primary reason I can hijack my decision-making? I don't know if there was one primary reason, uh, mostly just because I wasn't mapping everything out in front of me and I was in kind of a scarcity mindset of, I need this job to get my business going, keep it going, pay rent, all that stuff. Yeah, no, I totally get um, that. Um, and yeah, so those four questions are there for like big decisions. So I don't use those all the time for like small and medium decisions. If I make a big decision, 
I'm running it through those four just to make sure I'm eyes wide open. Um, and well, it was it was kind of a big decision because the project the project ended up being like six months. Boom. So yeah, that's it was a big a big chunk. Yeah, it wasn't just a small one off like logo project. It was a complete rebranding of this person's business with the signage and it was a restaurant. So it was like signage, menu, uh, apparel, like everything. And it, even like brand strategy, really. Wow. Yeah. Which is not something I usually do. Well, man, props that you, I mean, to execute a job like that, I know there's a lot of complex variables, but like you said, we can trick ourselves, you know, it's going to be okay with this client. Um, I love to use the example that, yeah, all Fruit Loops taste the same. That's crazy. They all taste the same, but I would swear the green one tastes like lime. Um, it's been proven they do. And this idea that your brain can trick you. And so I use those four to check myself before I wreck myself uh, to look at big decisions and go, okay, I want to run through these. And when I, when I say that primary reason and where all that came from was just reducing down, thinking fast, thinking slow, uh, a lot of Talib, the black swan, his work. Uh, he recommended a book, What I Learned Losing more than a million dollars because he talks about you'll learn more from loss than success and how great this book was at breaking down loss. And and I just studied through all that and really analyzed like my thinking and thinking systems and processes and said, what could I have as a guiding reference point that would say, uh, that would check me? And that fourth question though, the primary reason I would hijack my decision making, this really goes into the second part of the exercises the story you would tell yourself. And I know I wasn't as clear in the email as I was in the book or even on the podcast. And so this one you may need to go back and do. Uh, Because the point of it is, if you were sitting at a cafe and somebody came in and like weirdo prophet person walked up and was like, Eric, I have a story for you. And they tell you this story and it's so on point for your life. You would never forget it. You, you would just remember that story. So what's it like for you to be your own source of wisdom? And if you were to capture your own interest, what story would you tell yourself that would fully um, get you dialed in on where you are your own worst enemy regarding decision-making? So, for example, my story is... Uh, and this is just like off the top of my head, but, uh, and, and mine's real simple. Um, there was a man who wanted to put his family in a house. They were living in a tent. And so he started construction, put up the walls, put up the roof, got it furnished. It looked beautiful inside and out. He moved them in. In two weeks, the walls started to sink and sag. The roof caved in because he never built a foundation. Now, the reason that story captures me is because the primary reason that I would hijack my decision-making, and it's always related to your identity when there's a scarcity mindset, the primary reason I would hijack my decision-making is this. I want to chase the future, and I will overlook present concerns in pursuit of that shiny object in the future. And what that means is, another way of saying it, I won't build the substance and structure for my inspirations. Another way of saying that, 
I failed to build a foundation for the house. I just put the walls up and it caved in. So that story is there to capture me, right? Because I put some energy into that creatively, something that would, you know, really grab my heart. So when I'm in the flow of making decisions every day, and this happens, I mean, um, I'll walk out of a meeting and I'm going into another one and I'll be texting and make a decision. And I'll go, wait a second. And it's usually sometimes after I've made the decision, did I overlook any present concerns? Because that's going to be my tendency. So I'm going to go, okay, did I overlook any? It doesn't mean I can get them all, you know, taken care of. But I want to have eyes wide open. I'm looking at all those concerns. Now I can proceed. Let's go forward. Um, And so I, I check in with myself like that. So that's why I go back through the fears and decision making because that'll be that primary reason and you build your story around that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. My story is not as succinct as that <laughs> the one that I wrote last week. Hey, and it but I would like to yeah. Go ahead, you'd like to what? Yeah. So I'd like to refine it down a little bit and make it something that I can tell myself in a couple minutes or 30 seconds. When I'm in, in the panic of making a decision or so you think you tell yourself that story before you make a decision. Yeah. I mean, the way that I work is I'll often catch myself mid or right after I made the decision, but it's usually not too late to like look back at things. Uh, if I'm inking something and it's that big of a deal, I'm running through the four questions. So I'm moving way slower. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, mid and post decision for me, it's usually a bit like, okay, wait a second. Did I overlook any present concerns? No. Okay. Or am I about to, um, but it's, yeah, it's funny because last night I was on the phone with a really close friend of mine and he's struggling to make a, a huge decision, which would require him to move across the country and enroll in a program that he doesn't really i'm not sure if he's ready for but he got into it and he got accepted to it and he's i I feel like i need to send him these four questions uh because i don't know why i didn't connect the two i should have told him what i've been learning in this past week about decision making decisions but uh i was talking to him through it last night and it's really tough because when your gut is telling you to do something you can really easily overlook one simple thing or how did you phrase it you can you can distort reality really easily um or you can be counting on external factors that you can't control and it could all go wrong if that's what you're if that's the way you're making the decision or you're just disregarding things or distorting things yeah that's it, man. It's so easy to get distracted. Um, and I love to hear the way that people just do different things with their story. Uh, so even if yours is longer, if you want to shorten it some now, I'd still love to hear uh, what you came up with as a way to capture uh, yourself and keep yourself from getting distracted. You sure? <laughs> yeah, man. If you're uh, okay with it, all right. I'd love it. It's not a very good story. I haven't. Okay. I'll it's go in, for it. It's I guess. in motion. It's in motion. So, yeah. All right. 
right. So there was once a builder named Jack. Jack built houses, dams, and small boxes for jewelry and tools. Oftentimes, people would come to him and ask them to build something for him in exchange for food. But sometimes there would be a few weeks in a row where no one would ask him to build anything. This is okay because Jack had enough food in his house to feed himself and his friends. People would tell Jack that he was failing, or at least that's what Jack heard from them. But um, instead of waiting around, he went out and found some customers. He searched high and low, looking for people who could give him food in exchange for a house or a dam or a box for jewelry. And finally, he found someone who wanted three. He wanted all of them, plus some other things, and Jack was capable of making this. <laughs> this is really detailed compared to... It's basically my story. Dude, I love but I'll it, keep man. going. This is so good. Um, the customer's name, name was Paula, and Paula uh, was a little hard to deal with. All right, Paula was pretty crazy, or at least she seemed that way. Jack thought about it, and he was worried that he was going to run out of food or... Or something like that, even though he wasn't close. If I don't build these things for Paula, then I might not be able to find any other customers, Jack thought. So reluctantly, Jack made the house for Paula. Jack didn't, or Paula didn't like it, so Jack had to remake the house many, many times, even though the first one was the best house, clearly. Clearly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> clearly. This is so good. Um, <laughs> it went on like this for, for 20 weeks, and eventually Jack finished the job and moved on. Over those 20 weeks, he ate all the food that Paula gave him, plus a bunch more, and he shared a lot with his friends. Jack wasn't able to save much food, as much food as he wanted, because whenever he was angry at Paula, he would eat more food. <laughs> uh, in the end, Jack learned that sometimes getting the most food isn't a good reason to build things for crazy people. It's better to enjoy your food and build something that you're proud of for people that you love. Dude. Man, thank you for sharing that. That was so inspiring, and uh, <laughs> I I think it makes the point, and it comes, it's and it makes the point in a creative way, and it comes from who you are, and that's the best. Uh, I'll for, I may forget this, and so I'll, I'm gonna I'm making notes. Um, I'm gonna do that right now. I don't want to forget. I'm noting it. Uh, boom, Eric chapter nine story. So one of the things that I want to do, like maybe next year, I don't know, we'll see, is like an ebook where I put together people's exercises that they did. Um, so like, here's four or five different people from week nine. Here's four or five people from week five. You know, somebody did a kid's story. They wrote like a little mini kid's book for their week nine. Um, and just the different things, yeah, that they've done. That's awesome. Mm. Well, what jacks me up about that, too, is that you've got that much of this. So I feel like I can go to some of the more advanced things that uh, have been huge for me with decision-making. So I'm going to go on if you're good. Yeah, it's funny. You just said jacks me up. I wasn't sure if that was purposeful. <laughs> uh, it should have been. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, no. I'm good, man. That's a really cool idea. Put those into a book form or ebook or something. Well, yeah, I thought like nice. people that have been through it, uh, they would just get so much out of being in like my spot where I get to hear them. Uh, you know, every day it seems like I'm hearing something where somebody's expressing uh, 
themselves creatively through the way they do the exercises. So rock on. Okay, uh, let's talk about. I'd like to hit um, three things about decision making, all built on the foundation of knowing your fear and secure identity. Once that's there, now we get to be a little more advanced. Um, one thing is noticing how much certainty you need before you make a decision. So for a lot of people, they're trying to get that certainty level as high as they can. There's no magic number for this. You can't really measure it. Uh, but using the 80-20 rule, we could say it this way, people are looking for about 80% certainty you know, in their decision making. And anything beyond that is really an illusion that's false. We control so little. Uh, and so if you're a person who really has to get to a high level of certainty before you can pull the trigger, it's noticing that so you can start making decisions at a 75% certainty level or 70% certainty level because you're going to miss out on things if you don't know how to pull that number down. Um, with you stepping out on your own, you're going to probably be uh, more like me, which is I will... I have to increase my certainty. Um, you know, in my 20s, I'm 38 now, but it seems like in my 20s I would be like, 30% certain it'll work? Let's do it. That's a no-brainer. Um, and I so <laughs> much good stuff has come in my life when I'm like, I think I'm at about 40 or 50. I need to wait till I get to about 55. And for whatever reason, if I feel like I'm about 55, maybe even 60, it's like, all right, that's really good. I've waited. I've done due diligence. Let's roll. Um, so just something to take note of. And then if, if you feel like you wait too long or move too fast, just moving that number a little bit. Um, now, connected to that is what it means to increase your capacity for problems. Um, if you don't, if you're, if you're comfortable like moving around different levels of certainty, you can also be comfortable resisting the two extremes or ditches most people fall into with solving problems. One extreme is um, they just push it off, push it off, push it off. So most of the people I work with, driven, ambitious leaders, fall in the other ditch, which is, I have a problem, I should solve it. Like almost neurotic, a little bit of anxiety. And there's leadership literature that tries to make it sound like you're not a great leader unless you just solve that problem right away. Um, equal and opposite terrible reaction uh, or overreaction. Instead, you want to learn to sit with your problems. Now, um, I didn't put it this way in the book because I had help from friends editing. And they're like, Chris, this is really weird and it's going to take too long to explain. Uh, so maybe try to say it a different way. So I talk about it like it's a horizon. Uh, but I'm going to go weird with it with you. When I think about my problems, I think about myself like a planet. And I have all these planets orbiting me. Okay? Now, hang, hang tight for a second. Um, I've got one to three big planets. These represent big problems. Then let's say I've got five to seven medium planets. These represent medium problems. And 10 to 13 small planets representing small problems. So, and I don't necessarily always picture this, but it's like 
It's like an internal visual that helps me understand I don't need all of those problems at once in my field of view, um, but I don't. But I'm not ignoring them. They're still there. I'm not anxiously thinking I got to solve it right now. They're all in orbit around me. So at any given time, I, pro- I probably, yeah, I mean, just from analyzing it, you know, seems pretty accurate. About one to three big, five to seven medium, ten to thirteen small, and. You know, I could go through those right now. When they're going around, if if there's a pressing need or if there's a moment to seize, I need to solve that problem, then I'm taking it out of orbit. Um, and in solving that problem, I don't want to stop uh, unless a really elegant solution presents itself. I don't want to stop until I'm... I've come to like a third solution because we tend to be binary either or thinkers. So I want to push myself to get to a third solution. Um, I was in some training with an army ranger, uh, a guy who trains army rangers, and that was the idea. They train them like at the third solution. You always want to go with that, you know, over the first two you think of because it's going to represent this combination where it's not just a binary either or it's more creative. Um, so by using this visual, these planets, I don't feel stressed out. I got to solve it right now. I I don't feel stressed out. I got to get it off my radar. They're there. It's okay. The solution will present itself. My antenna is up. I'm able to sit and wait with it. If it's something I need to solve right now, let's solve it right now. Uh, if I don't, I can wait and wait and let that spin around. Um, so trippy example, does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I can probably going to have to listen back to that again, but I'm, I think I'm tracking with you. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a weird way of expressing. I am going to have a gaze off into the horizon with vision but I'm also going to keep my peripheral vision or sight uh, open also. I'm doing both at the same time. It's the same way you can walk into a meeting and go, okay, I want to move the meeting. I want to move the focus of where we're headed from A to B, but my peripheral vision is up, and I'm going to notice all the relational cues, breathing patterns, um, posture, Facial mannerisms, you know, whatever. Um, you know, I'm going I'm, to, I'm headed off into the horizon. This is where we're going, but I am not losing my ability to notice what's happening around me. Uh, it's a both and thing. And it's so empowering for me to give myself permission that it doesn't mean I'm a bad leader if I can't just solve all my problems right away. Because if you could solve all your problems right away, it would create all new problems. You're never going to not have problems to solve if you're moving forward you're creating new ones uh you just want to solve the best ones in the best way possible uh awesome man i know that's a lot so yeah you stop me um go ahead. it's funny i thought you were going to go somewhere else with the planet thing because what's interesting about that metaphor is Something could like a planet could be really big, but if it's far away, then it looks like it's small. I like you that. Know? I'm tracking with you. 
going to use that. So (laughs) (laughs) go for it. Uh, So if there's a big problem that you have, but it's way out in your periphery or it's really far away, maybe you're just suppressing it or ignoring it. Um, I don't know how you want to take that, but you know, I think that's definitely something a lot of people struggle with is they have a huge problem, but they just keep ignoring it, waiting until the next day, putting it off. I can resonate with that for sure. Well, and everything that you just said, too, about the shrinking the planet and it getting bigger and that whole thing, there's actually something called neuro-linguistic programming, NLP, and um, like anything, there are brilliant practitioners and then abusers, but you use a lot of... um, those kind of techniques, like if you have a problem, visualize it, move it way off, let it shrink down and get small. Um, you know, I know for me what that what that visual does is it lets me know that uh, it's okay to have these problems. I don't have to be crushed by them. I don't have to be in fear of them. And then I'm going to embrace the day. I'm going to go after it. I'm going to make things happen. I'm going to look at it like it's an adventure. And when things come around that need to be solved, all right, let's do this. Let's make that call. Let's take that initiative. Put yourself out there. Get vulnerable. Do what needs to be done. Um, and have fun with it, too. Uh, speaking of having fun with it, this is really like I don't always get time to get to this piece. Um, but this is this has been so rewarding for me. If you are really thinking through your decision-making and trying to become as aware as possible, uh, let's just acknowledge the reality that we're not always going to make what we could call, for lack of a better way of saying it, perfect decisions. Um, So you take a CEO of ice cream companies. They live shorter lives because they're sampling the products. So we know that, you know, we know ice cream is bad for you. You can't justify eating it. However, if you're not eating ice cream occasionally, which in my case, uh, almond milk uh, with food allergies at our house, um, if you're not eating ice cream occasionally, you know, boring. In other words, there are decisions you're going to make, and it's maybe 10, 20% of the time that maybe aren't the best decision. We could call it a bad decision. But how are you engaging that? So there's three ways you could eat ice cream. One way, you could eat it full of shame. I suck so bad. I shouldn't be eating this. What's my problem? Why am I doing this? Okay, so you're getting the calories and you're getting the stress response. Uh, Everything that it's doing, cortisol, you know, jacking yourself up, jacks back. Second way you could eat it is mindlessly in front of TV. Boom. You're chugging it down. I ate the whole pint. It's gone. You're getting the calories. You're not getting the endorphins. Third way you eat ice cream. Oh, this is amazing. This is so good. You're soaking it up. You're being present with the experience. And when it comes to improving your decision-making, it's noticing that when you do things that maybe aren't uh, decisions that you usually make, but it's time to relax and play and have some fun. How you go about doing that thing is important to notice. 
Um, and for a lot of people, they're either mindlessly doing it or beating themselves up. Any questions on that? Like, how would you apply that thinking to like a bigger decision? Like you said, sometimes 10, 20% of the time you're going to make not the best decision or you might call it a bad decision, but I guess sometimes your gut is telling you to make one of those decisions, even if it's a big one because you just want it so bad and you don't want to wait. Maybe it's your impatient or I, I like the word impatient because it has, I think a both a positive and a negative connotation. And I identify with that word a lot. Like I, I'm young, but I want to be, I think this is true for my generation. Like a lot of us want to be further along and we have trouble like enjoying the ride, but because we're impatient, we have a sense of urgency to our work that allows us to treat ourselves like real professionals, even though we're even just a few years out of school. Yeah. Yeah. You want to do it at a um, level. I get it. Yeah. And, and I think part of that is, yeah, waiting and continuing to put in the work. But if you, yeah, if, if you're, if you have a sense of urgency, you're obviously going to go further. You're not just going to wait till, someone hands you an opportunity, you're going to go out and find that opportunity or even make that opportunity happen. Uh, so I guess my question is, how do you apply that thinking? Like my friend, he wants to do this big leap to move across the country. And I think that he knows it's not the best decision right now, but he thinks that he could probably make it work and just do it and sacrifice while he's there financially and his lifestyle, you know, sacrifice, probably have to eat some ramen noodles and stuff. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah. You know, it's one of those things where I love, um, a really track with, uh, Tully, Nicholas Tully wrote the black swan, his thinking on, uh, decision making with where there's bigger risk. So 80% of what I do I'm dedicating time and energy to what makes the most sense to move it forward. I am also going to dedicate 20% of my time and energy. And his background is like stocks and trading. And so 80% sure bet, grow the portfolio, best you can have a sure bet. 20% risk it, gamble it. You know, for me, the way I express that is I want to take that half court shot. Um, so if I've got two business opportunities, one is growing, it's a solid foundation and one's like a shiny potential. It's like a sparkly object. Look what it could do. I could a thousand X my investment. Um, I'm going to dedicate 20% of my time and energy to that shiny thing. And if it starts taking off, I'm going to switch channels, um, and increase the percentage because then it's become a more sure thing. And you know, when you're looking at, at that idea of impatience, um, I mean, I, I had a friend of mine tell me, I'll never forget this, sitting at a restaurant, had an incredible opportunity, and uh, a friend and a mentor, I mean, he was way ahead of me um, as a leader, I mean, one of the most aware people I've ever met, and he goes, you're not ready. Um, and he's right. He was right. I wasn't ready. And I caused a lot of pain. Um, 
definitely threw my family into turmoil. And I learned a freaking ton. And um, I don't know if I could go back and do it over if I wouldn't not do it because I learned so much. And so it's so gray. I mean, it's different answers for everybody. But if you do make that choice, or if your friend makes that choice, he's got to commit. I mean, it's you know what I mean? It's got to be like a thousand percent all in. Um, because if he if he takes that course of action and there's hesitancy within himself that causes him to be... Um, you know, withdrawn or hiding a little bit or passive. He needs to err on the side of taking action because that's how he's going to make quicker mistakes and learn faster. When you put yourself in a bigger uh, potential for failing, it's like peaks and valleys. I want to walk slow over the peak and enjoy it, and I want to freaking sprint through the valley. Um, So I want to figure that out quick. Um, so yeah, on a small level, if you're making decisions, you know, that it's like, you know, here's my budget and I went shopping and bought this stuff and I shouldn't have, it wasn't the best decision, but it felt good to get a new sweater. I'm not going to beat myself up about it. I'm going to enjoy it. So that's easy. Although some people still don't do it. And if you can do it in the small things like buying a sweater, you can do it in the big things. Um, but Yeah, if he makes the decision and does it, he doesn't need to beat himself up about it. Like, what if I did the wrong thing? Just go. Head down, go. Um, And he'll learn way more from it. Does that make sense? There's so much to say about all that. Yeah, definitely. That's that's great. And uh, I think he's the kind of person that would totally just go for it and make those mistakes or just keep it just keep it moving forward and not just not dwell on it and wonder if you made the right decision while it's going through it. Yeah. And that's how, yeah, you run through the alleys. This has been the site shift lead podcast with Chris McAllister. Thank you for listening.